the rafters convention. Hello, my name is Terry and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm deeply grateful to be sober today and deeply grateful to be at the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and Alan, slash Alan, I guess. Okay. I qualify very easily across the board, let me tell you. Um, and I say that the AA slash Al-Anon meeting is the only place in the world where I feel comfortable, eventually. Uh, because whenever I go to a place where I don't know almost everybody, you all look like you're in on something. But uh, I missed and I kind of resent you. Um, so suspicious. Anyway, I, I'm somebody who started out very early with, uh, my story starts early even mentioning alcohol and alcoholism and recovery, uh, because my, uh, my grandfather took the Post article in 1941, and my mother tells me he made a special trip over to our house to give it to his son, uh, the Jack Alexander article that was the biggest, most effective uh, PR event, and the, the pivotal thing. I, I just read that book, uh, the new book, Susan Cheever on Bill, Bill W. Uh, and uh, that article, and it's March 1941. I mean, they couldn't sell the big book. They had to do a few little meetings, and then bam! <laughs> a grew after that, uh, that article. And um, my grandfather gave it to my father. He says, find these people. Um, <laughs> And uh, it took him a couple years to find them, but he did, and was sober, and had a slip, and went back in, and had a slip, and he died in withdrawal when I was, on his 42nd birthday, when I was six, six and a half. So I grew up with, and my mother had three brothers who were alcoholic, one of whom got on the program when I was junior high age. And so I heard nothing but alcoholism, the first drink gets you drunk, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Um, if they had only admitted that they can do something about it. Um, I heard that was like mother's milk. I, I got that, I had all that straight by the time I was six. Um, uh, and so, and I um, went to meetings with my Uncle Bill, looked at his amends list, he showed me his list of people he owed money, he was paying them off. I said, hey, they're serious. I better respect for AA right there uh, than they could get him to pay anybody. Um, and um, so I, uh, I, I'm kind of like, you know, if you're the, in an alcoholic family, you tend to um, cause a lot of trouble, or you take the, you know, the low road or the high road, and um, you're nothing but trouble, or like, if you're a kid like me, you try to create order. <laughs> if you're good enough, you get, if you get A's in school and behave yourself, Maybe they'll all calm down and be good, and they won't kill you, you know. Um, so I, I try to create order, and I, I think that was, you know, a lot of us people who are ACAs, uh, once, once the crisis passed, we fall apart. You know, we were good out of fear and terror, and they're like, what's the point? Um, <laughs> Once they can't kill you, <laughs> uh, that's a bumpy road. 
uh, also the, this, the idea of trying to behave yourself to get them to change. Um, I don't think you ever get over that. I, I think I kept waiting for other people to straighten up to see if I was all right. I'm still doing that. I'm looking around. Are they good enough for me to be all right? Um, that's nuts, and I'm nuts, and I need both programs. Um, I took a pledge not to drink plus 21. That's what Catholic kids did in the 50s uh, at confirmation. Now confirmation, the bishop made everybody stand up at the end of the ceremony and said, put up your hand. I swear you know, to uh, not drink till I'm 21. And uh, I did that, and everybody told me, don't worry. Nobody keeps the pledge. You know, uh, and uh, and I, I kept it. Um, and I went to the seminary and to be a priest, and I wrote this paper on alcoholism. Uh, two years before I had a drink, I read the big book. <laughs> and wrote a long paper, and uh, became the village expert in alcoholism. And uh, that's weird enough to mention, you know, in your story. Uh, and so when I, um, when I, when my 21st birthday rolled around, and it was in the summertime, just in the middle of the summer, I just passed my birthday again, uh, my natal birthday, and um, I knew it, it didn't slip by without me noticing that this is the day it's all right to drink, you know, and uh, so this was the day it's all right, and um, now I had done all this reading and study, and I had already computed my odds of being alcoholic uh, before I drank. I had, I put myself down at 50-50. Um, I know it's, it's one out of ten for the general population, but it runs in families, and it's running in my family big time. Uh, and I also had an older brother who was showing signs of being normal, and I thought, statistically, this was not good for me, you know, that he got, uh, got screwed. And uh, so I figured out about a 50-50 chance, and it didn't even make me nervous. I thought, if I, if I turn out to be alcoholic, I'll notice it. You know, uh, and as soon as I notice it, I'll quit. Uh, and, uh, and I'd say my main motivation, my, the main thing in the middle of my head about if I noticed that I had symptoms of alcoholism, I'd just stop right away, was my Uncle Bill's. My father died when I was so young. I don't really, you know, have those vivid memories. I have some vivid memories of falling through the French windows with a glass and curtain and screens all mixed up in one awful mess. But I didn't have, I didn't do a lot of thinking about it. I was too little. And I, but I thought about it with my Uncle Bill. And I thought, man, I will never do to any kid what he did to me when he was drinking. And he didn't molest me. He didn't abuse me physically. What he would do would maneuver me into a corner and bore me to death. Uh, you know what it's like to talk to a drunk when you're not drinking, and uh, you're sober, and, uh, and they, they plow along, you know, repeating themselves, circular, over and over, and, uh, and it, it, it isn't so bad that they're just plowing, but they, you don't get your turn in the conversation, you know, and you, you, you jump in with something very helpful and good uh, for them, they really need to hear, you know, something good appreciate this and um do they 
and they don't give you any indication they have heard what you said, you know. And so you think, well, maybe I didn't, maybe I put it a little differently. I could get to reword what you want to say to them. And then the more you reword it, the more frustrated you get because there's no indication that they heard. And so the longer you talk to someone drunk, the dumber you feel. You finally lose faith in your capacity to form sentences. And, uh, uh, and that's why, uh, that's the primary reason Elanons want to kill us. Uh, is that we, we can't listen, we cannot, be emo we cannot be emotionally responsive. I can't, once I'm drinking, alcohol takes, <clears throat> takes up my life energy. And I've got nothing left over to actually listen with. If I'm drinking and you're not drinking and you're talking to me, I'm, I'm all for you. I, I, I think caring is a very good thing. It's just that I can't do that for you right now. I, can't, uh, I hope you make it. I hope you're all right. It's just that I'm just a little too busy with the, um, the drinking project to actually care what the hell happened to you. Um, and that's right off the bat. Um, I, whenever I drank, I, I crossed the invisible line, by the way, sometime in the early afternoon of my uh, first day of drinking. It was, uh, it was just instant. I'm one of those people that had an instant deal. Uh, not everybody does, uh, but I did. It just hit bottom. It just came back, just this wave of relief and Oh my God, it, it, it wasn't that I liked it, it was way more than liking. It was, uh, it was like, you know, a conversion experience, a major discovery that there is hope after all. And maybe, you know, maybe you can actually feel decent for a little while in this ocean of anxiety, alienation, tension, and lack of appreciation, you know? There's a little island of relief make sure you can get a drink i mean just you don't have to have to drink every minute just make sure you got a line somehow to get one um i didn't get drunk that day there wasn't enough right there um but a boy was i it it, it hit me and um i didn't think oh you're an alcoholic because i didn't act like my uncle bill and my uncle matt and my father yet i didn't fall through the window and uh grab bore people to death right off, maybe I was right off, uh, but um, you know, I think of boring were an indictable offense, this would be an institution meeting, just, um, I don't think we would have served our time yet uh, for the offense, the boring, <laughs> what we did to people, um, it's just in that department. Anyway, I, uh, I was fencing around with stuff and early on I, it hit me, you know, you shouldn't like it this much. Uh, didn't like it this much. And um, I, I've already mentioned the symptom of alcoholism, and I, I had other symptoms like blackouts and things. Uh, not just that you like it a lot, you know. I usually don't think, oh, if you like it a lot, you're doomed. You know, that's true. Uh, um, but I was going along drinking when I could, and. Um, and finally, my alcoholic instincts were in full working order the first day. And the, the fundamental instinct, if you're an alcoholic, to get by, you know, to, not, to be able to drink and not get caught or in trouble or anything, you got to lie. 
And you got to lie not just here and there. It's a policy. Um, uh, you got to... And you don't, don't, you know, don't lighten up lies. Uh, now, I wouldn't count, um, you know, high, li I didn't think lying included just leaving stuff out, you know. <laughs> but I would leave out all feelings and thoughts about drinking because I knew, you know, you, they're going to be on my back soon enough. I'm not going to give them free ammunition. And, um, so basically, you, you never, never say how bad you want to drink. And when they ask for you a drink, don't jump up and down and say, oh boy. You, um, <laughs> you say, uh, they say, would you like a drink? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, why not? No, no, no. Um, never let them know you got a, never let them know you got plan B if plan A doesn't work out. Uh, don't let them know as far as you're able, and uh, I mentioned this a lot I, in my research on alcoholism, they, everybody who studies alcoholism notes that most of us, not all, but the vast majority of us get a tolerance early in our drinking, and we can drink them under the table, you know, and give them a ride home. The scientists are wondering, how can they do that? What goes on there? And I think it's very simple. We try harder. Uh, you know, if you start getting a little bit looped and, and you sit there when they, and you go blah, 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 you don't get another drink. You know? uh, but if you can stand up and walk and speak, and say, another one, please. You get, uh, you get another one, you know, and uh, this is very important. I mean, it's a crucial thing, you know. I can remember, um, you know, rehearsing going to the John. Um, if you, during you know, one of these parties where you're kind of stuck in a chair for a long time, you've had, if you had more than four drinks sitting in one spot, you know that Good tactics require that you not stand up all at once. You know, uh, what you do is kind of scoot to the edge of the chair and get up gradually and maintain your dignity. Um, and if it's time to go to the john, what you do is you kind of scout the route through, and then you kind of artfully lean on how you're doing. You know, lean on people, uh, and uh, and then when you finally get in the bathroom, the lights are very bright, and uh, you look in the mirror and you say, you're one hell of a drinker, you know, you're not bad, you know, uh, and then you get back, um, but that's, it's a lot of lying there, you know, uh, and um, uh, I, I, I fantasize what it would have been like had I ever told the truth in a social setting, you know. No, I never did, but um, <laughs> but if I ever had told the truth of that kind of a deal, it would have gone something like this, I think. If you would have asked me over to your house on a Saturday night and I didn't have a better offer and there was going to be drinking, I'd say, sure, I'll be there. And if I were going to be honest, I'd arrive, knock on the door, you'd answer the door and say, hi, thanks for asking me over. 
Uh, I'd like to put my cards on the table right away and get a few things straight. Uh, I'm here to drink. I'd like a double scotch right now. No, not after we talk. Now. No. Get my scotch. No. Yeah, you were nice enough to ask me over. I'm going to try to be a good guest. You know, if you got games to play, I'll play the game. Got uh, other people over, I'll try to mix it up and be, you know, a positive force here, positive element. But uh, just don't get between me and the bar, and we're going to get along all right tonight. Now, uh, usually on this kind of an evening, I get a bit gassed, but not too bad. I usually get through without incident. However, once in a while, I'll go nuts, and I might get in a fight or throw up on the couch or try to seduce somebody in a particularly tasteless way. But uh, that's the chance you take when you have me over. <laughs> The, uh, anyway, and, uh, and I started already, you know, worried about my drinking, and I got ordained a priest. I work and live as a priest right now in Los Angeles. Um, just my ministry this morning. I just came from Twin Towers, and I got to celebrate Mass with two batches of my sisters who are in jail still. Uh, and uh, I, I've been doing that for years. When I don't do a retreat, I'm in jail on Sunday morning. So, uh, I often, I noticed when I first started doing it that I was really comfortable talking to inmates and uh, much more comfortable than in a regular parish with regular people. And, um, and I thought, well, what is going on here? They're all women, I'm a man, you know. And, in jail, the main common denominator is not crime, it's poverty. Yeah. Poverty of education, poverty of family, poverty of money, po every kind of poverty. And um, so it's like, what? It, and I thought, oh, I know. I know what it is, I think. It's like an AA meeting in that nobody is sitting around worried about what might happen. It happens. Once your worst fears are realized, it's time for a spiritual talk, you know. Um, anyway, I, um, I went along and uh, was, in, uh, I was a boost fighter right away. Boost fighter, my understanding of a boost fighter, this one, is somebody who was trying to get as much to drink as I possibly could and try not to get drunk or get in trouble. And uh, if you keep both of those things in mind through an evening, there's a lot of math to do. Uh, you've got to measure the number of drinks and the number and how many minutes in between the drinks and how big the drinks are and how much displacement the ice cubes are taking. And you've got to remember where you live. You've got to remember where you are. Uh, got to remember where your car is. And I try to remember who, who it is you're talking to at the moment um, to not get into trouble. And, so things went on, and I was ordained a priest, uh, and then I was, you know, booze fighting my way along, and by this time thinking, oh, you're an alcoholic. You're not a real bad one like your Uncle Bill or Uncle Matt, but you might as well just, you know, you, you 
said you were going to quit. When you noticed it, well, you're noticing it. Uh, uh, and so uh, I, thought I'd, I thought I'd be good, be a good guy, and quit. So I quit. I thought, well, that's that. And I did. I lasted about, you know, four hours. Uh, and, uh, and I just thought, well, you know, we can... I started realizing that when I quit, my whole system just was not very impressed. <laughs> when I decided to quit. Something to me. And when I would change my mind and drink, it wasn't, oh, I just can't stand it. I just, oh, I just didn't know. It was just, oh, I get to drink today. I'll be damned. Thought I'd last longer. Time to drink. And then, you know, you pound your fist in the bar and I said, oh, what, what is this? And uh, uh, I went along doing that and uh, finally I quit and I, stayed, I lasted quite a while. After I lasted two weeks, I was impressed and then I lasted over a month and I was really impressed. And then I got the few months going and I thought, oh, you're growing up. I guess this is it. Uh, you're finally getting mature. Um, and uh, the month started rolling by and I got to the fourth month and I was thinking about vacation was coming up. It was the fifth month and I had this little attitude shift and I thought, you know, you just might have jumped the gun. I think, uh, you know, if you don't drink the whole rest of your life, it might not be good for you. You just might flip out, and uh, they'll find you babbling in a corner, and no one will know what happened, you know. He waited too long to have a drink. Uh, so, so I thought if you can quit for more than five months, that's proof you can quit. As long as you know you're able to quit, you might as well start, because you just quit again if there's any trouble. Um, and if that makes any sense to you, you're in the right place. Uh, right now. So I, uh, and I, I got back and I, uh, I drank too much for my vacation and I thought, boy, you are an alcoholic, you quit. And I didn't think of going to AA because I, I read the big book and I, I just thought they'd say, you have a disease, I know. And uh, the first ring gets you drunk, let me tell you. Um, and you need God. I just didn't want to have an ex-Methodist try to explain that to me. Um, so, and I couldn't imagine how getting in groups like this would matter, you know. I just couldn't, in fact, it would be worse, you know, to, uh, seemingly, you know. And, um, and so I went along and, uh, and was uh, quitting a lot. And um, but I actually quit quitting. I actually made a conscious decision not to quit anymore because if you quit for life, it, you just feel so bad when you drink again. You drink more than you would have drank if you didn't make such a big deal out of it. And so I, I quit quitting and was drinking a fifth a day of something. This young skinny priest in South Central Los Angeles, shortly after the Watch Riots, I was in the curfew zone in 65, the Watch Riots, and uh, um, it was just a mess. And uh, I was missing things, and my pastor noticed that, and we had talks, and. We agreed I shouldn't drink, and uh, then I drank anyway, and he turned me into the big boss, and I got to go downtown and talk to the cardinal. 
I lasted two weeks for the Cardinals and was showed up at a quarter to eight for the 6.30 mass. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, don't, I, don't mean, I don't mean get up, I mean show up, show up, get home, you know. And I said, I guess this is it. And he said, yeah, this is it. And so I got to, you know, be, go public, out of the closet, so to speak. Um, and once, you know, once you're publicly disgraced and you have one of the badges, a few of the badges of alcoholism by getting fired or divorced or arrested, hospitalized, those things, that's when all of our neighbors and relatives find out that public stuff. And, then, and some of them who are like you say, oh, oh, gee. No. And now, this is my own private theory. I haven't heard anybody else kind of elaborate this, but my opinion is, my experience, and it's my opinion that it might be shared in your experience, that when disaster strikes, doomsday comes, we don't care that much. Uh, you know, you know, we, we live with a sense of doom every day, and when it finally happens, it's not that much of a contrast to a regular day. Uh, and I got to go downtown, talk to the boss, you know. Go to a hospital and have people have staffing meetings just for me, you know. Um, it appeals to the ego, you know. Uh, but then I was, I was fired and, and then uh, on hold for a while, reassigned. And I lasted just four months when I was drinking again. And I managed to get back secretly and have the treatments over again. And then got back in place, lasted almost a year. Didn't go to AA. Um, drank again, went back. Uh, for the third time, yeah, the third time, and then the fourth time, and the fifth time. The fifth time of those aversion treatments, they asked me never ever to call them up again. I was uh, demoralizing the other patients and the staff, both, you know. No one felt good about this, you know, when you're there the fifth or sixth time. And um, so that was that. For And then I, the next time I was drinking, I needed detox. I got into a psych ward in downtown Los Angeles. And, and it was, um, uh, and when I got through, uh, two, two things I remember about the being in the psych ward for that time. One is that I became the Scrabble champion of the unit. I beat the patients, and then I started beating the nurses. And I, I mentioned this at a retreat I was leading for men. And one of the men in the retreat was a psychiatric nurse. And afterwards, he said to me, Father, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but they teach us to let the patients win. And, uh, uh, but the, the, the other thing I remembered that was actually important um, is that I, uh, when I got kind of turned the corner, I realized that I was going to be drunk again pretty soon. That this, this awareness, this clear, clear message you know, you're going to drink again. You always do, no matter what treatment you have, what counseling, what prayer you pray, what book you read, doesn't matter. You are a flake. There's something missing in you, man. You're not only an alcoholic, but you got something else wrong with you. You know, you, you have this thing where you, you can't care. You know, whatever it is people need to care, whether they live or die or make it or not, you just don't have that. You just kind of get bored with it. And I knew, somehow then, I just pictured myself on the same path as my father and my Uncle Bill and my Uncle Matt. And I didn't think I'd die soon. I thought I'd probably just stumble on 
having one drunk after another and become, you know, a pathetic, boring pain in the ass to all until I died. So I thought, well, at least it's settled. Uh, and I went from there to a recovery house in New Jersey. And I arrived there with a deep conviction that nothing would work and nothing would help, including AA. But you had to go to meetings or you, they wouldn't feed you in this place. And so I went to meetings. <clears throat> in fact, I went to more meetings than I had to. I went to eight meetings a week because I liked the guys in the place who were nervous wrecks. <laughs> um, the ones playing solitary before the TV, you know, uh, didn't define. And so I went to meetings and, and I thought, gee, I really kind of like AA. Too bad it won't work. <laughs> and you know, if you're kind of new, or if you're coming back after a slip, going out for research, and, you're, and you just wonder, you know, it works for some people, but maybe not for all people, that kind of thing. And um, here's my experience about that, about wondering if the, being convinced the program won't work or wondering if it will work. Um, the, the way I pictured the program working, the way it was supposed to work, the way I pictured it at the time I got in my recovery house, I was right. The program has not worked in the way I pictured it to work. The way I pictured it to work was to make me excellent. <laughs> of course, to make me aware, full of insight, relaxed, emotionally mature, highly skilled in interpersonal relationships, tough but vulnerable, <laughs> charming but serious, deeply spiritual, kind and loving, and very rich. <laughs> None of this has happened yet. <laughs> the AA doesn't say that that'll do that for you. It says you get to have sobriety a day at a time and a transformation that, since it's a transformation, before you are transformed, you don't have any equipment to imagine the side of the transformation. You can't picture it. And the, the best stuff that comes out of our recovery is, you know, who can picture that when we're not in it, when we're just pushed by fear and preoccupied with comparisons, and, uh, and we get in the thing and identify more than compare. And I started to identify with people. And I started to, to feel the life that comes when you identify with people. And, and the uh, a little attacks of joy you have. <clears throat> You identify with somebody and you, you find out two things are going on. One is that you get kind of relaxed, and the other is kind of embarrassing. You, you find out you love the person you're identifying with. You find out that you care about them and that you're just delighted they're sober. Oh, keep coming back, whatever you do. Oh, God. You are a bad algae. Oh, don't go very far away from the program, whatever you do. You know. I know drinking is not good for you, I know that. You know. Um, and those experiences, you know, are the building blocks of becoming, of going sane. You know, we, we, we start to go sane if you just, what I call, play ball. Uh, play ball by responding to suggestions. You don't even have to do every single thing, but respond. Um, 
say no, and then they say, oh, well, they'll make the next suggestion again later. And you have to, you finally get tired of saying no. Uh, but usually we don't, we're not that honest. We just finesse it until we get miserable. Um, um, but we just get to play ball, and it's so unlikely that, because um, it's not, when I'm in my sickness, when I'm pushed by fear, and when I'm preoccupied with becoming happy, <laughs> finally having a little relief, I think in terms of an alcoholic. I think of chemical engineering. I feel of, of just you know, and, and this thing of um, beginning to identify and become a part of, and then having the energy to be of service now, the whole thing of service. Now, when I think of service, that word has been ruined for me long before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Service means doing very good things that are difficult to do, that leave you vulnerable to be embarrassed about not doing them well enough, for people not particularly interested in your service, <laughs> where you waste a lot of time and don't get to have any time for yourself, and at least you're better than most people after you're done. <laughs> and when we're in service of Alcoholics Anonymous, none of those things are true. <laughs> when, you, when you're in service, really effectively a channel of God's help and some, to somebody, by the time we're in the middle of doing that, we are aware that we are so fortunate to be sober, up and running, and a participant in life, that to brag about it or to compare ourselves to others is obscene. You know, it's just distasteful. What do you mean better than? What are you, are you, uh, you know, I'm being released from the bondage of just being boring, boring myself to death with my own drama. You know, I <laughs> release for a few minutes to hang out with someone else. Uh, and <laughs> it's different, you know. And then, and then when we are of service very effectively, I know a guy one time, and I'm sure you've experienced this. He said he's been a 12-step calls, and he said, I've been in two kinds of 12-step calls. And this guy giving his witness, he was doing this at a convention. Uh, he said, one type is where I'll show up and really give my best to this person. I mean, I give my experience, strength, and hope, and I give the insights and the things that I've picked up over the years. I've been sober over 20 years, and I give them the best, and I just stick with them, and I, I'm generous, and I hang out, and they escape. <laughs> That's one type of 12-step call. The other type is when you, you're just getting started. You don't get to your best stuff yet. And they say, well, let's go to a meeting. Well, don't you need more persuasion? <laughs> uh, and then, then you go to a meeting, and after the meeting, they say, did you hear what Janet said? Wasn't that neat? You say, Janet? You know, you're listening to her? Um, <laughs> They always start quoting people dumber than you as a source of inspiration. And they never seem to remember anything you said. Um, and then it becomes obvious that God is at work. Higher powers at work, working through many people. Now, it works through you, but not the way you want it. You thought they should be a little more impressed with your best stuff. And um, they don't understand your best stuff. Uh, <laughs> with his blood and guts, you know. Um, 
time doing inventory. I, um, uh, you're going backwards a little bit, but I was, you had to do an inventory or they wouldn't let you out of this recovery house. And so, okay, so I, I did kind of a dumping the garbage, trying to be sure I told the worst things, and I put them down. And uh, then I got somebody to listen to it. I, I was careful to pick out somebody I thought was just so nice they couldn't possibly reject me and put me down. Um, and I could have picked anybody, it'd be the same, but the, I got this priest who was next door neighbor to this recovery house, and the, he heard it, and, uh -huh, uh -huh. and then we went out to dinner, and um, it was as I was finishing this thing up, I realized that whereas I was putting in everything that was the worst, I did try to put it in such a way as to let him know I had a little class. You know, <laughs> little ego trip during the fifth step. Um, and, you know, we're called to do the steps. And if you think you're doing them so imperfectly that it's no use doing them, that's not true. If you do it kind of bad, man, that's so much better than not doing it, I can't tell you. <laughs> Then, then come back again, you know. And I would, before that, the third step, I was, I wanted to research the third step because I, I, I wanted to have class. I wanted, if I'm going to surrender, I'd like to do it at depth and do it right. <laughs> I didn't want to jump into this too fast. I'm going to surrender right. And um, now I was already being surrendered without my permission. You know, uh, the third step, I think largely as a affirmation of what our higher power has already done with us, where he's kind of slammed us to the earth, dragged us forward, and made you listen, and you're listening. <laughs> and, and responding. If you're listening and responding, you're in the middle of surrender. That's going on. Um, but I looked at it in a deep spiritual way. <laughs> and I wanted to make sure I surrendered deeply and truly. And so I'm reading Dr. Tebow's pamphlets and 
Surrender versus Compliance and Therapy, and he had two others that I forget the titles. And um, and when I read about Surrender versus Compliance, and I read all about compliance, which is you know, a phony surrender, kind of a people-pleasing mod <laughs> modification of your behavior so the therapist will like you and your sponsor will like you. Um, I identify with that so much that I just wanted to hang myself. Uh, I, I thought, that's me. I can't do it right. And, you know, and I don't think we can, we can't surrender right and notice we're doing it at the same time. <laughs> Either you're going to do it and not notice it, or notice yourself and not, and comply. I wanted to surrender, you know, while I'm looking at one of those mirrors, you know, in the bathroom, someone had, you know, and you can see your profile, I wanted to see my profile and notice, yeah, he did it. You know, um, <laughs> I don't, some of you aren't sick enough to identify with this, but, um, but surrender is, surrender is playing ball. I mean, surrender is, I, I think I was, I've been drawn into surrender, and it takes a while to notice it while you're being drawn into it. It's getting distracted from your usual agenda enough to actually participate in Alcoholics Anonymous and take some suggestions of your sponsor and do things that really don't offer much hope of reward. You know, I, there isn't a single thing ever suggested to me in Alcoholics Anonymous that seemed like it would matter if I did it or not. Go to a meeting, okay. Oh, that'll do it, sure. Let's, go, let's drive way across town and listen to people we never met. Uh, go on about themselves. That should make me happy. Um, <laughs> that should get me spiritual, close to God. That would be a big breakthrough. Um, I'm always looking for a big breakthrough, you know? And of course, the breakthrough is not experienced as, ta-da! It's, it's, it's kind of coming to and noticing that you have been so distracted by things suggested for you to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, that you have not been able to keep your focus sufficiently on how miserable you are and what a failure you are, and you've been forgetting about that for stretches of time that allow you to actually make some friends and have a good time. Uh, I know I, I had a good number of friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't want to count you as friends because you're not my type. have these official friends, you know, uh, but I, I'd like to have friends with, who have standards, you know, and uh, you obviously don't have high standards, you know. Um, I even had the, uh, a couple of guys, and my classmates, I had two classmates that I hung out with and that really had standards, and then I had two one guy was born in Ireland, and one was got a partner in crime, and they, I found I could say anything to these two guys. I could just, I was completely unguarded. I would say anything I fantasized or did, or any, and just go to confession to them, and, and um, I had no respect for either one of them, because <laughs> if they had any standards, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have me as a friend if they had standards, so obviously they don't, no. Um, and it took me, a, I had to be sober like 20 years before I realized, oh, that was, 
spiritual and emotional maturity um, <laughs> that they can accept another human being as they really are in the present moment and they go go ahead you know um, mm-hmm. and we get uh, and I know the that little whispering thing that went before we got in my recovery house this little message came and I kept waiting I, I figured if I was gonna get better I would have a a clear determination not to have a drink a day at a time for the rest of my life and a reasons for it and it would be clear and strong and um and this little voice said to me you're not sentenced to drink if you don't play ball you'll mess around and you'll drink and die but you're not sentenced to drink just play ball and i know to close on this and uh ooh, I promise not to talk. I know if you're like me, you're, you're thinking, this guy thinks he's the last speaker. He probably can go on and on, you know. Um, <laughs> I know when someone talks over time and I'm there, I, I just go crazy. Uh, um, so I'll try to wrap this up. The last, I was sober about a year, and I was in a meeting, and I hadn't had an obsession to drink since I was in the recovery house once. And I was just cruising along, and the next thing I knew, the lady giving the pitch was making, giving recipes for tropical drinks. And uh, <laughs> the next thing I knew, I knew I was going to have a zombie at the tiki hut in the way home. And this little man walked in the back of my head and just sat down and said, you're going to drink. If you'd like to give me a bunch of reasons why you shouldn't drink, why it'll ruin your life and break all your promises and destroy everything. Go ahead, i got time. Go ahead. But you're going to drink and you'll save yourself a lot of trouble by having it tonight. Why hang by your fingertips on the windowsill for three days and then drop? And uh, it's like the floor dropped out from under me. My stomach fell. One little corner of my brain was going, oh boy, oh boy, we get to drink, we get to drink. Uh, and, uh, and this message from Alcoholics Anonymous came to me. And it wasn't a voice, but it was a message, and it just said, do not talk to your obsession. You are incompetent to talk to your obsession. You always lose when you talk to your obsession. This, you're using the part of your brain that's insane when you talk to your obsession. Just shut up and ask God to keep you sober. I said, okay, God, please keep me sober. Then I thought, I wonder how long I can last. And the A message said, None of your business how long you can last. You turned it over, remember? You'll last, and you'll like it. Thank you very much. All right, let's give it up one more time for him. Okay, we got one more reading, and and uh, 